Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number 58. My name is Dominic. I am one of the co-hosts of the show. The other co-host is named Janus, and he will be on here in a few minutes. Today we are delighted to have Shay Belay on the show. He is an author, a cult lecturer, musician, performance artist, and podcast host. A devoted occultist for over 20 years, his committed adherence to subversive forms of spiritual expression has served as a vital foundation for his work. He has conducted lectures and workshops throughout the United States and beyond, primarily on subjects related to left-hand path occultism and religious heterodoxy. He is the host of the Deferred Gnosis podcast, a show primarily focused on investigating and exploring contemporary and fringe philosophical spiritual and religious subjects. As a ritual performance artist, he blends various forms of esoteric practice with transgressive ritual expression. His occult writings have appeared in numerous print and digital publications, his most recent being Friedrich Nietzsche and the Left Hand Path, an occult philosophical treaty published by Atramentus Press. Recent profile pieces of which Shea Belay has been the subject have appeared in Vice, 62nd Docs, and the forthcoming documentary series, The Secret Teachings of All Ages. He is the founder of the Occult Student Alliance based in San Francisco at San Francisco State University and the Black Sun Sect based at uh, KU Leuven in Leuven, Belgium. Both are esoteric organizations created to provide an empowering and sympathetic community for those who feel called to a path outside of traditional spirituality. He holds a master's degree in philosophy from the Catholic University Leuven in Leuven, Belgium. You can find info on this new book, Friedrich Nietzsche and the Left Hand Path, um, from the publisher at Tremendous Press at A-T-R-A-M-E-N-T-O-U-S press.com. For someone like myself who grew up in a very ethnically Catholic family and community and who lived through the satanic panic of the 80s and into the 90s and even had his Dungeons and Dragons manuals confiscated, it's obvious the stereotypes that were burned into the fabric of society at that time by the evangelical Christians in America and continue to the present day. It's interesting to talk to someone who identifies as a a Satanist and those people who are participating in what is the left-hand path because there are so many deeply ingrained ideological characterizations of Satan and Satanists and a lot of people who identify as such tend to sometimes lean into those stereotypes 
But as you will see in this interview, I think there's much more to it. As always, I want to say thank you to our very generous and supportive Patreon members. It's very encouraging to know that you all are out there listening and supporting, and it makes this so much more worthwhile. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius, and may any merits that we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings, so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. Okay, we are extremely excited to have Shea Belay here on the show to discuss his new book, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, The Left-Hand Path, as well as um, all sorts of other things uh, pertaining to The Left-Hand Path. Uh, welcome to the show, Shea. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you guys so much. I am uh, honored to be on, and I highly respect the work that, that you and Janice do. So thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Looking forward to it. We'd like to provide a little bit of a fresh perspective. So I think this will be nice with that. Shay, let's let's just start with, if you wouldn't mind, just get into maybe a little bit about yourself and how you got where you are right now. And then we'll kind of branch out. Sure. I grew up in a pretty dicey area of Los Angeles. My mother was a bit of a a self-proclaimed medium. Uh, and we grew up in, I guess, what some might call a haunted house. And not only was I relegated with stories of past lives, but also explanations to some of the uh, phenomena that was happening in our home. And beyond that, it was, like I said, it was, it was a pretty seedy part of, of Los Angeles. And in the, uh, in the early and mid nineties, it was a pretty violent and, and uh, calamitous time there on the West coast. And given those, given those parameters, I sought to find myself to escape a, a form of escapism and spiritual escapism. And that found me an interest in, you know, different things, science fiction, fantasy, but also, also the occult and uh, philosophy and from there, I quickly found Satanism, and it, it's been with me over the years. And I've uh, delved into it deeper and deeper to the to the point that I've begun to write about it and lecture about it in different parts of the world. And it's it's become a center of my meaning to the study and, and devotion found in the left hand path, particularly with traditional Satanism. And that's that's the long that's the short of the long, I suppose. Yeah, I have a feeling there's more to it. So, um, 
when when you mentioned Satanism and left hand path in general, there's kind of a, a spectrum. I'm curious where you fall on that spectrum because you have on one end maybe like the atheistic, almost libertarian sure. Satanists, and then all the way on the other side of the spectrum, you've got almost the like the you know the opposite kind of the neo pagan spiritual t- types. So where where are you in that on that scale? Yeah, you actually with that question you highlighted. Uh, you, you highlight a kind of key consideration with the term the left-hand path. So the left-hand path is both useful and it's not terribly useful at all in another regard. So it's useful in the terms of as an umbrella to understand how people might identify. So if I say I'm left-hand path, then you might think, okay, uh, they might be okay with something like traditional witchcraft or chaos magic. Mm-hmm. They might be influenced by Luciferianism or Satanism. Uh, they might work with the Kelepot or how some say the Klipoth, uh, you know, the inverse tree of life. You might get an idea of the kind of magical past that they're involved in. That's how it's useful. Where it is not useful and where it's growing actually more cumbersome, especially as modern occultism develops, becomes more syncretic and so forth. Uh, And as different religions begin to, these uh, heterodoxical religions begin to mature and evolve, in a sense of morality, right? So we can understand left-hand path so much as we understand right-hand path. Now, if we understand right-hand path, then we understand it to, at least traditionally, to be in alignment with the, or a supplication towards the divine, who is this kind of edified moral compass. We think of the Abrahamic religions. We think of Buddhism, in a, if we think of it in this very antiquated sense, to this is right or wrong. This is a deontological. This is the what is a list of moral uh, attributions that you must align with. Um, then the left hand path is an answer to that. It's an answer to that kind of. It's viewing morality as this kind of edified thing that you must. Uh, uh, that you, that you are asked to to supplicate to or the, to uh, adopt, and the left hand path is this adversarial rejection thereof. But I believe that whole conception is somewhat antiquated. Uh, you see now the traditional what we would call right hand path religions like Wicca moving into traditional witchcraft, older forms of witchcraft that. Although one ointment that will kind of cook up to heal your child from sickness, in a second, they would also uh, stab a frog into a tree in order to curse a woman who's trying to uh, who's trying to move on your on your husband. So they didn't have this moral guideline, uh, this strict moral guideline that we understand today. So, but it so you see, Wiccans and other aspects that we used to call in quotes, the right hand path moving towards a more crooked path and a more, you know, postmodern aspect of ethics, I suppose you could call it. So in that sense, as far as a moral alignment or a moral indictment, the left hand path is, is becoming less and less useful. So where I fall into that, having said that, is I'm a Satanist and I haven't veered from that. Uh, I have, there's a lot who in the 90s, when they became familiar with Satanism, they became familiar with Anton LaVey. And so like you had said, libertarian, modern Satanism and all that, 
this atheistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Satanism has has grown over over the decades following, and I'm very much a believer in the sense that they, you know, you see a breakup between atheistic and theistic Satanism, which I think is further a, a silly dichotomy. It's a silly way to to um, identify a religion, but it, it is what it is. And I would consider myself more of a theistic or esoteric or traditional or orthodox Satanist. Okay. Very interesting. Thank you. Um, and, and you're a performer as well. So um, how does this performance art that you do, um, how is it related to your theistic Satanism? The performance art aspect came from my love to one of my first artistic loves was towards poetry, towards spoken word poetry, written poetry, spoken word poetry. And I got involved in the slam poetry scene early on in mm. LA. And in there, I started to inject some of the occultic or ritualistic aspects. So I turned slam poetry into this ritualistic thing. I had a small segment of the slam scene really loved it, but a larger part was really is quite rigid actually. Hmm. And a larger part was shocked by it. Uh, I enjoyed both probably equally. And that then led into later on being involved in different occult groups and traveling and where there would be lectures and conventions. Then I started doing more ritual performance art that involved different forms of body modification, bloodletting and uh, devotional work in a public setting. So the performance art kind of envelops both of those uh, spheres. Okay. And is that um, other than just being a performance and like a spectacle for shock value, um, what's the, is there a spiritual dimension to that for you personally um, while, while yeah, you know, performing? Right, right. Well, I suppose it's provocative. I think mm-hmm. shock, shock is, is, is interested necessarily in a relationship to the audience's kind of boundaries. And I mm-hmm. think there's importance to transgressing boundaries, uh, but that's more a, that's more uh, accident in, in the work I do. It's simply um, in private or if I am doing a public ritual, I do involve this forms of transgression. For me, I have always been plagued with a busy mind. That is to say, uh, it's not simply that I am distracted by several things at once. It's that I have a barrage of thoughts and awareness that so, that is um, often gives rise to different forms of anxiety and things like that. And I found through transgression, physical transgression. I remember the first time I suspended, that is to say I had hooks put into my legs and my back that allowed me to go into like a lotus position is what they call it. I, from a tree, actually <laughs> they're doing suspensions under a tree. And this is very mythological now that I mm-hmm. kind of think about it, but uh, it was one of the, it was one of the first times that I had a clear mind or a still mind, as they would say in Buddhistic meditation uh, or Zen meditation. I was without thought, right? And it was that extreme physical transgression that allowed me to have an open mind and a still mind. So, for some, having a glass of wine 
Uh, for some, they don't need you know. There's no implement at all. For some, it's it's a decorated ritual room, or it's a particular uh, litany, uh, chant, or yantra. Uh, for me, oftentimes body modification, uh, self mutilation. These this physical transgression helps clear my mind for a for a higher order. So it's really um, by plunging into the somatic awareness, you transcend the rational discursive intellect and are able to enter into uh, a sort of um, non-dual consciousness. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. I think what it what it does is it removes you exactly what you said. It removes you from the dualistic, physical, spiritual realm, and it, it puts you in a space that I think... Janice, you might you might agree with it. puts you in a space to perhaps operate on this level necessary for occult practice. Well, and the inheritance of post-Enlightenment Western culture is um, this obsession with rationalism and an identification with the analytical intellect as the source of the identity. And this becomes a problematic egoistic construct so by plunging into the materiality of the body, we can enter into a state of liminality that enables us to sure. step outside of that false identity. Would you agree? Yeah, I think what's interesting that you point out is it is, and I, I, I kind of describe this as, I call I call it viathiosis. So this is a... Uh, a way to ascend oneself through violence. And I also call it the uh, VIOS or the God of violence. And this is for an article that was published with anathema through one of their pillars anthologies. And I talk about, you know, and it's, it's an idea I use to kind of describe what we're, 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 we're discussing. And that is using forms of violence in order to connect with the divine. So this, I don't necessarily feel that it immerses you in materiality, but it's certainly invoking a channel within ourselves as material beings in order to uh, create a uh, tabula rasa, um, a clean slate. Wouldn't you say, though, that Satanism is, in a way, a method of encountering the numinous through materiality rather than escaping it through a sort of transcendental spirituality that seeks to escape materiality. There's sure. a plunging into the depths of matter and finding the secret fire at the heart of it. I think you, you raise, uh, you raise a point about Satanism that I'm, I'm fascinated with and you, you took it, you took it a, a step further than, what I think most understand Satanism to be. So we understand Satanism via the lens of modern Satanism, via the lens of Anton LaVey and uh, the Church of Satan. And in his writings, there is this egoistic kind of affirmation of the flesh, affirmation of the body, rejection of the spiritual, so on and so forth. Uh, a psychocentric kind of uh, affirmation. The Within that context then the way I'm speaking about an externality or a transcendental 
may not necessarily well we're, would be riding the edge because I'm speaking about it uh, with a spiritual underpinning, and so we're riding the edge there. Although we're still at, we're still in line, but certainly where where the line is drawn is that I am talking about a a affirmation of the spirit or affirmation of the transcendental, and that would defy this aspect of modern Satanism. But what we've seen happening is uh, so in one sense. You're right. In a sense, this would be misaligned with what we've come to understand as the more modern or rational Satanism. However, Satanism, as like many other religions, it, it has grown up and it's done so rather quickly, where now you have forms of Gnostic Satanism, Gnostic Luciferianism, Luciferianism, so that the spiritual aspect of the left-hand path is now exemplified and an option within these paths so that you can be a Satanist that understands Satan symbolically um, as, a, as a balancing factor, or however you view Satan ontolo ontologically, um, but not necessarily obsessed with uh, the physicality of the human spirit that is open to even a spiritual transcendence at the expense of human frailty, human physical frailty. Right. So where does, um, cause, cause there's, there was a role, there's a role for Satan as, as just kind of a generic or symbolic adversary, which I think you alluded to kind of moving beyond that, that has its place. But as far as Satan in, kind of your theistic paradigm, what place does that being, you know, what, what role does it play? Or Right. So within, within theistic Satanism, you find a myriad, mm -hmm. a syncretic kind of for each on an individualized level for myself. And I, I think if we want to talk historically, actually, we don't have to go to me necessarily, but Satan is a kind of, he's on the earth. Uh, mm -hmm. Historically speaking, he is, you know, you, you saw some of the first packs with Satan were soldiers on the field who would write a pact in their armor saying, Satan, I give, I pledge myself to you so long as you protect me. Or the poorest people would appeal to Satan. Those who were the most desperate appealed to Satan because he was on the earth. God was the god of the nobles. He was the god of the king and the prince and the royal family. Landowners. Satan understands me as the downtrodden. Satan was the god of the people. God, Yahweh, is the god of the ruling class. So, and this is why you saw Satan acquire this, especially in the 19th century, acquire he was a symbol he was a protector of the working class he was a sim uh, socialistic symbol communistic symbol often used as defending the people against the bourgeoisie um that's no mistake you know we understand satan to be of of the physical pleasures of sins we all sin and those who are without money or land often had no reconciliation to this sin so Satan would forgive me for my sins and Satan would have, would, would, would affirm that. So Satan, I do acknowledge Satan in this aspect, um, but my, my theological conception of Satan goes 
a bit beyond that, but that's definitely one important. And I, I see him as a balancing factor, almost like a pantheistic, that the flame, the, the black flame that is often invoked in the left-hand path, the black flame of consciousness that some conceive as being delivered by Set in the desert. It's black flame of consciousness, the life itself from prokaryotic into eukaryotic life, the great rebellion of, or the great rebellion of inert matter into living consciousness. That is a rebellion. So as the Luciferian rebellion against the divine, so that adversarial energy that makes nature what it is, um, as a willing force, uh, I also see as a as an aspect of of Satan. As I, you know, as I kind of devote myself, uh, at least metaphysically, that's 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 part of the conception as well. So, I guess you know, in a in a theistic sense, in a monotheistic sense, in a pantheistic or polytheistic or panentheistic sense, uh, I I conceive of Satan in in all these expressions. Okay, interesting. And yeah, what you, what you were speaking about earlier uh, reminded me uh, very much of, of Kimbanda in Brazil on how kind of the lower class people, uh, they kind of turn to that, uh, that kind of energy, that kind of being. It almost sounds, though, like what you're describing as a sort of post paradigm, you know what I mean? And so it makes me wonder if that mythological figure is that figure, and I'm not denying the reality of that being as a entity, but is that is that figure really useful to uh, as a, as a symbol uh, to describe what you're articulating? I mean, isn't it a challenge? Isn't it more challenging in a way to embrace something that keeps you tied? Through its name to the Abrahamic paradigm, if if you're really trying to transcend it, I think that's a great question, right? So you're certainly um, Satan is coming from the Hebraic Abrahamic paradigm. You're right, but I think your question is actually is actually at the core of the answer, and that is. We are all, everyone on this call, I think I can say pretty, pretty with certainty, grew up with these paradigms defining us with families, uh, culture, media, everything around us was in the context of Judeo-Christian belief. So in that sense, and even LeVay discussed this, uh, in that sense, and, and prior to him, in that sense, Satanism is a is a stigma. It's a shock. It's it's it shocks the system into a reaction, so that you can you can clear you can clear the psyche. And this is not just Levey, but prior to Levey, you had some of the uh, Sekla, the turn of the century, late nineteenth century, and and mid nineteenth century thinkers who understood the power of the symbolism of Prometheus and Lucifer and Cain and Satan as these things that would shock us to attention. So in that regard, Satan, Satanism and Satan carries a powerful catalytic kind of current. And but I you know to move beyond that, because the next question was then why why exactly anchor once it's kind of 
shocked you in in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think because Satan as a universal edifice carries a lot of power um, because it can also begin, you can use it to kind of view other mythologies through a lens that may not capture in a Western sense. So I believe Satan carries power in a, in a, in a Western ideology. Now, if I grew up in Samaria uh, or I grew up in, um, you know, among the Vedic times, or I grew up in indigenous, uh, you know, native American or uh, West African, you know, Satan may not carry that power at all. And Mm -hmm. I think Dominic, you highlighted that by, saying, uh, mentioning Kimanda. Kimanda, actually, <laughs> it took the Western culture and it incorporated that into some of the demonic images like Baphomet and things like that right. from grimoireic kind of belief. So um, I think, but that notwithstanding, I think being from the culturation that I've had and from where I am in this point of history, Satan is incredibly powerful and it will always be powerful. Um, and still to the, to, to this day for me. So, so Shay, I'm, I'm wondering because I've experienced, and I'm sure others have as well, um, going down that left-hand path too far can sometimes, um, yield results that are, um, exactly what you're asking for, I guess is, is the way to put it and not what you're necessarily expecting. And what I mean is, is there a a balancing act you have to kind of participate in so that you don't become overwhelmed with a certain type of uh, energy that kind of becomes a little bit too chaotic and a little bit too overbearing? I'm hoping this is making sense because I know that when you align with certain energies, um, your, your life kind of follows that energy and and how do you navigate that and let me know if that that doesn't make sense no no no. i think i think there's several things here so i touched on it when we talked about uh moral attribution yeah between left and right path so doug and your question is absolutely valid right but digging into that we are making the assumption that left hand path deals with powers or mm-hmm. if i was if i was right hand path if i was a if i was a wiccan in the 1970s would it from what position would one have to be to ask do you have to worry about the powers you're dealing with right mm-hmm. and if we we dig into that then we would say okay it would have to be um it would it would have to be probably a traditional normative you know christian or something like that to say what about the powers you deal with well, well i yeah. deal with fa- fairies and whatever even though fairies are incredibly dark if we look at the history but yeah that setting that aside um so we have to acknowledge that we think of the left-hand path as dealing with quote-unquote heavy powers because of a culturation we've had and a perception that demons and things are, are heavy sure. powers so let's acknowledge that aspect so we we have a contextual um so Having said that, if we think of if we think of baneful magic, because I think that's where this is kind of hitting at, mm-hmm. baneful magic like curses or something like that, something that deals with violence or something that deals with destruction, I think that actually makes up a very small part 
of the left-hand path actually. Uh, I think, in fact, I think, you know, what would we, what would we call Kimbanda? What would we call Santeria? What would we call these different indigenous paths when they on the regular Vodou or what have you on the regular are, are cursing their neighbor or cursing their sure. boss or whatever. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily, you know, would we call it heavy powers? Would we call it dark? But so that all considering, I think that I am actually, I am more on the conservative side, I guess, if I were to, label it when it comes to things like baneful magic when it comes to things that i do think are vibrationally heavy um i think demons are complex you know when we think of the left-hand path we think people that are openly dealing with demons although the left-hand path really at the core of it deals with all things but let's let's discuss the demon part of it um i think like goetic demons and things like that are, and I think other spirits can be particularly heavy and staggering to interact with. Um, I think angels can too, but mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's a different story. Uh, so I, I, I'm conservative in the sense that I shy away from certain magic that only under very particular situations would I in, in, in engage in like baneful magic or something like that. Because I believe destructive energy, deconstructing energy is, is like you say, is, is something heavy. And I feel like you have to come upon that with an increased re- responsibility and accountability. Uh, so generally speaking, though, I think someone with a left-hand path can totally live a life as a Wiccan from the 1970s could have, where they think of healing and they think of merging with the divine and they think of Satan as a charitable being or entity. Uh, So, and that's, that's one of my points about the left-hand path and actually why the term itself isn't exactly useful. So that someone on the left-hand path can talk about the feminine or masculine divine, and they can talk about what Wiccans used to own um, decades ago, in that you can have a quote unquote white light religious identity within the left hand path. Uh, so I think we need to visit the point of uh, the whole two things, right? Um, number one, left hand path. This really comes from the Hindu Tantra, uh, the sure. tantric traditions, and people who practice Tantra. Um, in those traditions often reject the Western assimilation right. of the term West hand, left-hand path, not West hand. Well, I guess it is the West-hand path. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they, they they reject that because they say it's, it's not fair and not representative of what they do or what they believe. So in the West, we have to kind of look at that, take left-hand path as being something um, that has become culturally distinct or that is culturally, sociologically, and um, uh, religiously distinct from from the from the 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 Vamamarg, from the from the Eastern understanding of tantra, which really goes back to the veneration of the feminine principle, the Shakti, and and you know there there are parallels in the transgressive practices. However, there's clear clearly separate and distinct. Uh, characteristics that really 
that that don't merge according according to people who practice you know Hindu tantra. Yeah, if we're to right, so the important you raise an important point, and that is as we understand left hand path today colloquially, at least within esoteric the esoteric context is not at all what it originally came from. Uh, So you're speaking about the Vedic source of it. Uh, But what it does point to is the idea of our uh, kind of dualistic morality, which did not exist in the, in the, in the Vedic origins of, of the left-hand path. It has become something else. You know, you get Gershom Sholem, who who is kind of the preeminent scholar of Jewish mysticism. He discussed the uh, Eliphas Levi and Blavatsky and McGregor Mathers and and the Golden Dawn and everything that came in the in the late nineteenth century into the early twentieth century as their appropriation, I guess we could call it, of the Kabbalistic mysticism or the Zephyrot, or the the Tree of Life, as the great heresy. In this way, we can think of the left-hand path in the esoteric sense as the great heresy. It is is a recapitulation. It is a new conceptualization of left-hand path to represent different Western esoteric memes. Memes in the sense of mimetics, as these spheres of, of meaning. So you're absolutely right. Uh, now it, it, we can look to it to teach us about non-dualism and we can look to it to understand what they meant in a, in a moralistic way. But beyond that, you know, Satanism is not going to fuse to Vedic teachings seamlessly. This is going to require a negotiation. So, uh, you know, if we discuss the if we discuss the origination of the left hand path, that's one conversation. If we discuss what the left hand path means today in a Western context, that's a different conversation. But what we're getting into, I think, too, is important because this goes back to the the figurehead, too, right? Because we're using what I've been trying to do is also call attention to the language we use as a son of Hermes. That's important to me, and uh, in both cases, we're using assimilated terms from traditions that aren't necessarily being engaged in, although in some cases I understand they are being engaged heretically. And um, having followed the development of the left-hand path, um, you know, say, let's just say from the 70s to through now, right? I have seen certain figures who used to identify probably more along those lines move into more traditional, actual left-hand path. Like, you know, they become, they actually become involved in like Kashmir Shaivism or Shaktism or, you know, so I have seen a trajectory. I've been reading the work of people who have been involved on the left side of things in Western esotericism. And what I often see is actually a development into um, those traditions. The other thing I want to mention that I think is kind of analogic, corollary and um, and and dovetails with, and we've been kind of dancing towards this, I think, 
is the identification of Lucifer with the adversary. Personally, I don't see those figures as being the same being at all in any way. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the the Satan and Lu- I I agree with you. I don't I don't view I don't view I mean Satan historically, mythologically, symbolically is completely different than Lucifer. Um, in in the same way, they have a completely different etymology. They have a completely different history. Satan being a you know going as far back as the Old Testament. Uh, originally being an obstructing angel, an angel that is obstructing um, in numbers. He is obstructing Balaam, and it is an angel that appears to stop his path through a donkey at first, then he appears with a sword. Uh, So it is a, and then in Job, you see Satan becoming a, as Alan Watts would say, a district attorney. So a judger, an Mm -hmm. accuser. But he's still on the payroll. Um, he's still on the payroll. Indeed. Indeed. Um, and he still answers to to the boss man, right? In that so sense. So isn't the show rigged then? Right, right. So in that biblical sense, uh, and that well, over time, he then acquires around the second century or third century, he acquires this. He is retrofitted that every evil act, every evil being in the Bible is Satan. And then he, there's a universality where he becomes the cosmic principle of evil. He becomes the ultimate evil. Um, so that's Satan. Lucifer is the son of Aurora. Lucifer is the light bearer, is the Lucifera, so the, the bearer of lights. Lucifer is the, the morning star, like Venus. Uh, Lucifer often, you know, seen as enlightenment or intelligence or awareness, definitely a different, you know, different energy or a different symbolic meaning than Satan, the accuser, or Satan, the adversary. So I agree with you there. However, we look at, you know, Milton and we look at Lucifer, the rebel becoming Satan, then they start to get merged and these start to become a, a, a bit um, ambiguous, but I think there is importance in each of them and all of them. I mean, and it also depends too. Like, our there's there's these different lenses, right? Um, there's the, his, the historical development of a modern figure of rebellion through through the Romantic. Really, the Romantic tradition is the origin of this, you know, because um, Milton. I mean, Paradise Lost, huge aspect there. Right. Uh, then there's the Okay, so we've got we've got the literary tradition, then we've got a sort of philosophical tradition. Sure. And then we also have a mythological tradition. I mean, yeah, he becomes the cosmic sin eater, basically. He becomes a cosmic scapegoat, you know, and then you can trade. But then that gets dicey if you go back to the Book of Enoch, because you have different figures among the Nephilim that sort of you know, that are more prominent in that early Hebrew narrative than essentially the angel of Mars, because Samael is the angel of Mars. And so he's really just fulfilling the potency of the cosmic warrior who's under the employ of the Old Testament God. Yeah, it's it's really interesting you mentioned that, uh, because, you know, for the longest time, 
I saw, I understand Lucifer to be a mistranslation where the son of Nebuchadnezzar is seen as descending from heaven. So it's actually from the Septuagint into English. It's a, it's a, it's a mistranslation. It's actually not, it's referring to a person descending from the glory of God, not as Lucifer and paradise lost help give life to that. That's what I thought was the thing. Lucifer was actually not Satan and never, never was Um, until I dug into it more scholastically and discovered that, you know, although some of the book of Enoch is actually sourced throughout, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of nail it down. Some of it was written in the 19th century. Um, The parts about Lucifer descending from heaven was actually written in the second century BCE. So interestingly enough, what what what's fascinating is that that was a truth that found itself through a mistranslation so the mistranslation created this idea of lucifer becoming satan and rebelling against heaven which was actually an idea that was around the nag hammadi text if i'm not mistaken so it's a fascinating kind of development you know i really hold uh I don't call him a saint. I don't consider him holy. I consider him a bastard. But I, 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 uh, I hold Jerome responsible for this. Jerome, That's right. Jerome That's right. mistranslated, That's right. you know, mistranslated yes. a Hebrew narrative that used Babylonian mythological imagery as an allegory to des- to describe mm-hmm. the fall of the king, when in reality that imagery is discussing the cosmological process of Venus rising and setting and her two sons, Shalim and Shahar. So, I mean, and Jerome is also the one, and this is, leads into the next point I want to ask your opinion on. Jer- Jerome also is responsible for the slanderous evil lie that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute when in fact she was the Apostola Apostolorum, the apostle to the apostles, the, the most favorite of the apostles. Why? Because he was demonizing the woman, which goes back to Judaic mm. tradition. Yet, sure, sure. so we see this conflation of the woman of femininity with the adversary, which results in you know in the demonization of women, women throughout Western culture post that. And so, I want to ask you about your opinion about the feminine in Satanism as well, because the feminine is so much a part of Eastern West left-hand path. I mean, that's the Shakti call, right? So in, in, in Shaktism, the feminine is the face of God. And in Western religion, the feminine is excluded, is excised. In Judeo-Christianity and in, in Abrahamic religions like Islam and traditional Judaism, women are seen as, you know, subservient chattel, essentially. Yet in the left-hand path, they're empowered, but there's this conflation with corruption through the collective shadow. So I think that's what's fascinating. One of the things that are fascinating about the left-hand path, culturally speaking, is that it has given rise to a form of feminine empowerment, at least an embodied one that has a spectrum of the feminine character, the Lilithian spectrum. So you could see figures like Lilith being 
rehabilitated in in feminism. You can see that going back some time. But the left-hand path has given back the bloody, violent kind of ass. It's okay for a woman to be angry, violent. Uh, it's it's a, to, to be brutal. So the left-hand path has embraced Lilith in this way and, and in a greater aspect. Uh, but Satanism, the left-hand path, uh, witchcraft has been a stepping stone or at least some sort of foundation for feminism going back now about 150 years. So you raise a very important point that I think one one aspect of left-hand paths influence on western culture has been to under, has been to embrace the more quote-unquote undesirable aspects of the feminine divine um through figures like Lilith. And what about the idea I know that in some left-hand path circles um even Jesus is seen as kind of a rebellious figure more of a luciferian figure not an adversarial figure but he's at you know in this sort of i know there's an element of gnostic lhp stuff where the old testament god is seen as really just a big demon and in that case and lucifer is the great jesus is the luciferian rebel that liberates human beings from the tyranny of that slaver well and the the sin eater yeah the sin eater and the scapegoat as well yeah yeah uh, you know, there was a, um, when I was maybe 14 or 15, I was reading a copy of the Black Flame, which was a periodical released by the Church of Satan. And at the time, I was still Star Trek, starstruck, not Star Trekked, but I was starstruck by the material coming out of the COS. And this was the Anton LaVey Memorial issue. And in it, uh, Blanche Barton, who was the high priestess at the time, interviews, I, I don't know his name, but he was someone who did a, uh, he was someone who did like, I guess, 1940s classic, maybe ragtag type jazz or something. He he was like a neo, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know what kind of, I never listened to the music, but in the interview, she's interviewing him. And the whole thing, you think he's satanic as fuck because he's talking about 40s and 50s aesthetics. And he's talking about a lot of things LeVay did about what he found attractive about those eras of American culture. And in the end, I think Blanche Barden asks him something like, are you, are you a Satanist? And he says, I'm actually a Christian. Uh, he says, Jesus Christ was the Anton LeVay of his time. And I still remember that uh, to this day, to see Jesus, Jesus Christ, the punk rock aspect of Christ, and and the Gnostic idea of the the Christos, the Blessed One, being this Luciferian solar deity. Um, I think all of us here have probably watched uh, Zeitgeist, of, you know, within the last ten years, and this this idea of connecting and and a lot of the late 19th century cultists did well in this and that connecting all these symbols blavatsky did this a lot to a paranoic degree connecting all these mythological things together and uh, yes from an ophitic sense christ is the 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 outer god the uh is 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 the gnostic the gnostic god is the luciferian figure the the snake on the cross 
Uh, and in that way, he is a adversarial figure, oddly enough. Um, it took balls to tell the Roman Empire that you're the one true God. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so switching gears a little bit, because I definitely want to get into this. I am fascinated by the topic of your your book that you've you've written, and that's that's is is it out now? The uh, it's been in pre order since the uh, winter solstice, um, since December twenty first. 2022 okay and it's going to be physically published within the next uh, it's supposed to be the first week of march okay is perfect. when it's going to be physically printed and sent out okay well good timing for us to have you on then um i really want to get into uh, uh nietzsche and how he fits into this and um kind of how, how you got into him and your thoughts on him and just kind of this book in general, because it does sound extremely fascinating to me. Yeah, thank you. I When I first started studying Satanism, which was like anyone else in the 90s, it was through a copy of the Satanic Bible that I picked up at the mall. <laughs> and Satan, or <laughs> Anton LaVey references Nietzsche quite a bit. And when you look at the resources available at the time and uh, the church of Satan written by Blanche Barton and the biography of LaVey there's LaVey there's uh, Nietzsche mentioned throughout all of it. And so I started picking up Nietzsche and I, I was 13. And so I didn't really, uh, I had trouble understanding at the time, but let alone, I still tried to read it. And so I discovered Satanism and Nietzsche around the same time and and kind of had a uh, casual study of of Nietzsche f- what would follow for the next 20 years and then when I decided to take philosophy as a academic discipline more seriously and then I moved to Belgium to to get my master's degree in that I decided to make that passion the the thesis was Friedrich Nietzsche and the Satanic Emilio. And, you know, in Europe, they accepted that kind of thesis because <laughs> they're a little more flexible. Uh, religious studies in the United States would be a little bit harder to, to get that kind of thesis through. But I was able to find a few thesis supervisors who were interested. And my book came about as that kind of lifelong passion and an expansion of my thesis into, into a book. So... That's where that came from. But for me, Nietzsche's influence on Satanism was always obvious and on the left-hand path um, and on the occult in general. But no one had written anything about it. No one had ever put it in one place. I've seen some, you know, Stephen Flowers and his Lords of the Left-Hand Path kind of mentioned a little bit. And there were some academic articles written by Jesper Peterson and uh, Ruben van Loyck and some of the handful of people studying Satanism academically had made references to Nietzsche passing references, but no one had ever put together something just focused on that connection. Cool. Cool. Um, He's a fascinating character. I mean, problematic and paradoxical in all sorts of ways. Um, What are your thoughts on, I mean, he famously says God is dead lamenting. I think a lot of people think that he's maybe, um, cheering on that idea, but it's more of a lamentation, right? Where 
the West has lost um, its kind of moral foundation, yet he is no friend of Christianity. And I don't know that he was sad to see Christianity go uh, by the wayside necessarily in some other senses. So um, what are your thoughts on that just in general, just to start us off? Sure. I think, so the, you're right in to say that it was a kind of lamentation. It was also a warning. Mm. Uh, Nietzsche was very much, Nietzsche was very much giving a warning for a time to come. And he, he, he wanted to also give a moratorium on what God had, had come to represent as the center of morality and the center of meaning in Western society. He identified what he called the will to truth. This is something that happened with um, Platonic thought, the idea of the forms and the idea of an idealized uh, paradisical kind of uh, reality. This is there is something higher than nature as it is. This is why he often uh, combated it, or this is why he often drew a distinction with what he called the Dionysian. The Dionysian mm-hmm. tragedy, the Greek tragedy, was an acceptance of life as it is. It took the struggles and the tragedy, and it confronted it in a playful way, or at least a way that allowed us to deal with the profound sadness and desperation that exists in daily life. He, he understood the Greeks, the, the Greeks understood this. Now, what he saw in the kind of after Socrates and with the Neoplatonic conception is that there is something greater than this life that they're in. There is this, there is this ideal that we should strive for at the expense of, of nature. And there is this higher truth. We saw this will to truth, to seeking this truth as one that would deconstruct the idea of God itself. This seeking of truth as a higher ideal, the will to truth would then um, disassemble God and eventually usurp God Mm -hmm. so that he would no longer represent the center of meaning. So when Zarathustra from thus speaks Zarathustra, Zarathustra comes upon the people and says, God is dead. It is, it is telling, it is speaking to the audience and they actually don't respond to him because they don't understand actually what he's telling them. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche says, I see this thing coming and I do not believe the people are quite understanding what I'm telling them. It's not simply that this religious figure in your lives is lost. It's that the very foundation of your lives is, is in threat. And he saw a time coming when we he feared that we would not be able to replace our training wheels. That is to say, what we had relied upon for ultimate meaning. Uh, and so a lot of his philosophy was to prepare us and gear us towards understanding this calamity and, and reconciling it. Do you feel, I mean, I get the sense a little bit that he was he was running from nihilism in a way, but yet without that spiritual component, you almost end up full circle back at nihilism uh, in a way. I mean, can, can things like entertainment and, you know, philosophy really, really bring true meaning? Um, Maybe, maybe yes. I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah. He, he, he talked about that quite a bit. He actually called a lot of entertainment and he, he discussed, kind of flippant investment 
And he talked about hedonism as uh, the narcotization. This mm-hmm. was uh, a nar- uh, narcoticizing ourselves with a displacement of meaning. And he saw that as a form of what he called passive nihilism. This is merely an appeal to things that that pacify us and and yeah. do not give rise to seeking towards the actual source of things or the core of things or the core of ourselves to discover who we are or, mm-hmm. or look into those 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 aspects of things. So he identified what entertainment as actually a response to um, the death of God. One response would be a kind of distraction or a way to to move ourselves from the task at hand. Another way that we we could respond is through an aggressive deconstruction of the world around us that he called a form of active nihilism, although he kind the active nihilism becomes a bit ambiguous in his writings. But one aspect of active nihilism is to deconstruct the world as it is. But he discussed the dangers in that. Destroying the world around us is not going to – we have to find something to to go past it. So that's why many philosophers later would write about an aspect of complete nihilism or perfect nihilism. And I discussed mm-hmm. that in my book as well as Satanism as an, as an answer to it. Interesting. Can, would you mind going a little bit deeper into that? Yeah. So one of the ideas kind of Nietzsche hinted on and some philosophers that followed, especially the existentialists um, like Sartre and Camus, uh, kind of, uh, and Foucault, uh, discussed a kind of deconstruction of the world so that we can build something upon it. And I noticed within, if we're looking at if we're looking at something that's a little more stable and found and has a has a has a larger foundation philosophically, we with Satanism, we can't go too far beyond LeVay. So just sticking to LeVay and sticking to modern Satanism and to sticking to the philosophical Satanism of the 19th century, um, we see a deconstruction of the moral values that is and done so in a playful way. So here's these symbols, you know, LeVay famously said in a, um, in, uh, I believe it's called uh, Satanis is the documentary from like 1971 or something. And he said, in and, and, and part of that interview, he says, you cannot simply scrape the psyche clean. You have to see yourself as a sinner and embrace it. You cannot not be a sinner. You could be the best sinner on your block. And uh, I cite that, that idea quite a bit in my book because uh, Nietzsche, I think would see that as the development of his idea in a positive way. Now that's not to say he wouldn't see all of it. You can only conjecture so much about a dead man's thought, but Mm -hmm. I think that one aspect of it, he would find um, constructive. And that is that instead of erasing everything uh, that Christianity has done in the West and everything related to Christianity, we can use some of this in order to define new meaning. So we don't get rid of all of it. 
We try to understand our place in it and we use it to redefine who we are and redefine the world and find new meaning within it. So the, you know, active nihilism sought to its completion is a way for us to be rid of the authoritarian social norms that have been imposed upon us and discovering new meaning by discovering the new, the, the world in a new way. And so things about kind of, I, I also highlight things like the black mass, things like the satanic ritual chamber. So in the black mass, again, you're not necessarily doing away. What you're doing is you're going through the trauma of Christian theocracy and you're, you're burning the Bible, you're using the wafer and you're, you have the naked woman on the altar. So you're, you're, you're going through this process of what um, LeVay called a psychodrama. So this kind of psychological, and what's interesting is that Nietzsche defined himself a bit in terms as being a psychologist so I see a I see a very important line of legacy between this this thought. So something like the black mass or the ritual chamber, where symbols are inverted in order to affirm life. Um, what Nietzsche called a saying yes, a saying yes of life, an affirmation of life through the deconstruction of of, of the world as it was. So I highlight those points in you know, those well-documented areas of Satanism. And I highlight those points to kind of what looked like what Nietzsche Nietzsche wanted to move towards, which wasn't the complete throwing away of Christianity or Western um, morality, but being able to find oneself in that deconstruction. Awesome answer. Thanks. Uh, that was beautifully put. I was wondering if you could, you, you mentioned earlier, um, he he had this kind of yin and yang thing going on with his uh, Apollo and Dionysus uh, sides, and I was wondering if and I find the the Dionysus side interesting, at least on the surface, especially considering what Dionysus represents mythologically, um, and the fact that uh, Nietzsche succumbed to to I, I I don't know what the actual diagnosis was, but um, a sort of madness pretty early on and it just is ironic given this Dionysus kind of connection um would you mind kind of going into what Dionysus meant to his his thought and his work right right so in the birth of tragedy and I actually devote the first the first chapter of the book goes into a I call it a comparative theophilosophical analysis of Satan and Dionysus of uh, the Romantic Satan, so the 19th century Satan and Dionysus of Nietzsche. On one level, Birth of Tragedy was merely mirroring uh, some of uh, Arthur Schopenhauer's work, um, will and representation, and Nietzsche was kind of painting it in a romantic way using some of the Greek mythology surrounding mm -hmm. Apollo and Dionysus. On another level, we can describe we can describe that duality as Apollo representing form and governance and law and mm -hmm. order, and Dionysus representing 
kind of the wild expression of reality as it is. I say that quite a bit in my book, reality as it is. That is accepting an, an immersion into the chaos and uncertainty. Um, Apollo, the Apollonic asks for a kind of understanding of reality, perhaps a pinning down of it, establishing or a forethought. While Dionysus in his epiphany, that is to say his appearance, there would be a clamor, a loudness, a chaos. A lot of his, the cult of Dionysus, their stories of the women killing their children and marching into the running wild into, into the wilderness, um, disavowing their families. And Nietzsche correctly identified this as a full unadulterated embrace of the world that we live in this very hard to accept uh, embrace of tragedy that humans have to acknowledge no matter how much we try to anchor ourselves, no matter how much we try to entertain ourselves or distract ourselves from the world as it is, the Dionysian reminds us of this painful tragedy of life and the sadness and desperation that comes from it. So I, I saw some similarities with Dionysus. Nietzsche, actually, towards the end of his um, mental condition, some believe it was syphilis. And new research is kind of showing that he might have had a uh, tumor that was that mm. had put pressure onto onto his brain. And that that caused a lot of the issues he was having in the dementia and things. And either way, um, at, towards the end of his life, he would sign his books with Dionysus. He would sign his letters, sorry. He would sign a lot of his letters with Dionysus instead of his own name. Wow. What's interesting is uh, uh, Crowley would sign his name as, uh, you know, he would, he would sign his name as the, as, as the beast, right? Um, I was. Or, or what have you. So, or Baphomet, he would, he would put Baphomet. So it's very interesting that legacy. And Nietzsche never, he never drank, right? Or he didn't, he didn't believe in, he didn't think alcohol was a good thing at the same time, which is kind of funny. <laughs> right. He, uh, yeah, like there is evidence that, you know, there is evidence that, that he, you know, he engaged at brothels or, mm -hmm. or what have you, but I, I think it's a cheap shot. I, I noticed this in other parts of our society in Western society, where we take someone who's a difficult thinker or someone who is difficult to understand or challenges us. And we like to put shots on them to simplify their standing. So there's, Oh, well he was, you know, he had syphilis. So right. he must've been, he must he must have fraternized with prostitutes. So mm -hmm. that is a way to diminish him in a very flippant way. Yeah. And I so I like that research is coming out that's kind of showing that maybe it wasn't, but we don't need a reason, even if he did get syphilis, that doesn't remove the 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 discomfort that his ideas bring. Yeah. What this makes me think of is um so I mean we're talking about philosophy here, but it does dovetail back into the Levian stuff because there's like a difference between theistic and philosophical versions 
of of this you know what i mean and i see the sort of i see the same sort of inversion of power by reclaiming you know a spurned term you see it in culture all over the place we even see it in we were talking about kimbanda earlier we see it in kimbanda we see it with people using the term pagan as an empowering term seeing people use the term witch as an empowering term when in reality in traditional societies witches are malefic malignant people who are seeking to undermine uh the the community um but you know in western culture we see witch embraced and in the same way we can i think look at Nietzsche as um taking you know ideas of apollo and dionysos and treating them in this sort of philosophical sense but i think it's fairly safe to say that nishi wasn't a practitioner of any sort of pagan religion and i think that even his conception when when he says god is dead i think that on the one hand he may be referring he's referring to um perhaps just the abrahamic god because he's speaking about other gods and on the other hand i think he's giving voice to the zeitgeist um giving voice to the 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 uh, activity of rationalism on the collective unconscious you know and I, i think that if we look at it from a jungian point of view the the god image then at that point was becoming subservient to the sort of um descartian uh, i think therefore i am you know the the sort of egoism that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode as being exactly the kind of thing that people who are pushing themselves to go beyond the boundaries of the mind through what you said is a sort of spiritualized violence um are trying to move beyond you know what i mean so i think there's an interesting set of transformations of meaning that are going on here that bring us to the point of the distinction between the theistic and the philosophical aspects of this right so there's a couple of things is that clear enough? yeah no 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 i understand well there's a couple thing a couple points of interest in in what you said so the the first is the theological aspect of Dionysus or the Nietzschean terms Dionysus or God or even we when we talk about Satan. So certainly Nietzsche was not a uh, he wasn't a theist in 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 the way it, it's fair to say he wasn't a theist. Um, although you know when he discusses things like the will to power and the Dionysian force. It does get a bit ambiguous, but I think Nietzsche, like many other in his in his canon, liked to kind of poke and be provocative. And he used a lot of things that he kind of wavered in, in how much he believed in them. Although, you know, he talked about things like the eternal recurrence and he talked about it in a very, sometimes a very literal sense. So it becomes very difficult to kind of nail down ontologically what what Nietzsche meant by these things. But what we can say is probably he wasn't a traditional believer in Dionysus or anything else. Um, so that's that's one side of it. The however, you know, he might have saw it as being a powerful symbol. You know, there I say I 
mention it in, 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 in my book saying that although there's no evidence to say that Nietzsche believed in this in any ontological sense, that he spoke with it in with a passion, um, a fervent passion that would outshine most believers today. So these concepts meant so much that discussing on whether, you know, the literalness of what he was talking about is is not as valuable, I think, to me, because it's it it was the highest and of the most importance to him, these concepts. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is you you mentioned him bucking against uh, Christianity. He does discuss the Vedic and he does discuss um, Islam and he does discuss Buddhism. In fact, he celebrates Buddhism as being a rejection of that central theistic figure. Um, he saw Buddhism as being a partial answer to Christianity and its reliance on a central figure for meaning. However, at the time, they only had so many translations for what they, you know, in Buddhism, you had sunyata or emptiness or Zen Buddhism, which was an abandonment of the physical world and um, co-occurring origination and and all those ideas that, that you find in, in Buddhism. Uh, Nietzsche interpreted all that at the time, and so did Schopenhauer, as emptiness, as nihilism. But... You know, as as we come to find out, emptiness was a bit more complex than that. Yeah. There was an idea of things codependent arising, and um, all. But he described that what we need is a European Buddhism, is what he called it. So we need a Buddhism that rejects this central authority, this deontological authority, and which gives us the ability to also understand the world is not being permanent. So he appreciated Buddhism as presenting a philosophy that the world is transient, as embracing that transience. But he didn't care for the pacifism that you found in Buddhism. Um, he saw that as nihilistic. So he saw active nihilism as possibly in a religious way, expressing itself as a European form of Buddhism. That is to say, a Buddhism that deconstructs a central figure, sees the world as transient but affirms it in an active way did he see the passivism of buddhism in a similar way that he saw that in christianity where they were more of like a slave mentality he did actually so he's he saw he said the greatest nihilistic religions is christianity and buddhism these are the great uh yeah these are the great nihilistic faiths but he saw he saw Buddhism as having an opportunity to move beyond it. Mm. Uh, but that pacifism, that unwillingness, that kind of stoic response to a changing world, um, he saw Buddhism as inactive and therefore ineffectual. Hmm. Interesting. Um, quickly back to Dionysus for a second. I, I wanted to ask you and I forgot. Um, do you make the connection between Dionysus and uh, like Rex Mundi or uh, Satan? Yeah, yeah. So some of the some of the points that come out to me about Dionysus is that at some point he has seen well, 
Nietzsche ties Dionysus to Prometheus as being these these figures that force us to deal with the ugliness of life and 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 react to it. And uh, he, you know, in that way, it, you know, Satan kind of illuminates us to the ugly aspects of life, our sinful natures, this kind of adversarial confrontation with the world as it is. And I, even in my writing, I, I look for this, that kind of um, unites the two. There was some academic work that's been done that shows that Dionysus was really Nietzsche using a satanic image. So all the reasons that the mid 19th century or the 19th century poets and writers had used Satan as a kind of symbolic figure or a allegory, um, allegorical figure. Nietzsche had used Dionysus for these same reasons. He's, he'd even said in his updated preface for Birth of Tragedy, uh, where does the goat, where does the billy goat in the satyr point? What he was saying is, where where does the where does the horned aspect of the goat and god can be found so he was hinting that this can be found in satan um so nietzsche saw dionysus as a way to confront the satanic aspect of life that what we would understand is at least within a satanic con- uh, context the satanic aspect of life mm-hmm. as it is accepting the cruelty of nature accepting yeah. the cruelty of god Fascinating. Awesome. I think Jung's comments are really interesting. He discusses how he says, Jung says that in contradistinction to the Semitic God or Semitic, I don't know, call him a God, angel, whatever, uh, there's also another sort of devil figure that is more of a pre Christian European pagan figure that is a devil but he is not the abrahamic adversary and i find i've always found that that point that jung makes to be very interesting because he's he's pretty emphatic about that figure not being conflated with the figure of the abrahamic adversary and i believe jung then associates that figure with odin among other beings and also mercurius so what Jung is doing, I think, is essentially um, drawing attention to the sort of uh, trickster psychopomp figure in pre-Christian European culture. And that, to me, is interesting because if we look at the Abraham the Abrahamic impact on indigenous cultures uh, around around the world in Africa, in, in, in among indigenous Europeans, we see the trickster figure demonized and relegated to the realm of the shadow, when in reality, it's a traditionally consistent archetypal principle in indigenous cultures worldwide. But there's no trickster figure in Abrahamic religion. So that ends up being conflated with the archetypal mm-hmm. shadow. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, that's uh, that that's that's a very important point that uh, it's fine. You know, one might argue that this is a necessary aspect. I was actually just before I I, I got on this with you guys. Um, I was watching part of Northman. I'd already seen it before. I saw it when it came out. But in Northman, there's one of the opening scenes is there's the jester there and he's telling the he's telling the king that your your wife has eyes for other men and it's this really offensive kind of thing to say to someone of royalty but what's interesting is they tolerate the presence of the jester he's allowed to completely disrespect completely shit on the royalty in the room and I and I started to think about I don't know how historically accurate that is. I don't know if there was a jester in the Nordic pagan times in the pre-10th century. But I thought that might be important for a representative of the people to be able to criticize the royalty in, in their face in the most offensive ways and what role that plays. Um, it's an extension. The jester is the extension of the human spirit who wants to pull coals in the divine because we, if I may, you know, give a conjecture, I think we deal with an uncertain world. And the jester helps us through humor to make fun of the things that are edified. And in, if you look at it from a divine aspect, we need to be able to make fun of God. And the jester helps make fun of this eternal order that's so scary. That's why in chaos magic, in some aspects of chaos magic, you end a ritual with laughter. Um, it's the ultimate weapon that a human has in order to deal with this powerful world that we don't really have. Uh, we don't have full control over the natural, you know, as magicians, we affect change in, in our ways, but there are certain things that are immutable in the world that we exist within. And to be able to laugh at it, to be able to make fun of it uh, is a type of, power so from what you said it, it reminds me of that the jester is this divine ability to make fun of this cosmic order of which we are somewhat have to confront at, at, at some point and do you think like laughter and and um, humor have a place in the left-hand path because you know a lot of people on the left-hand path they come off as like super super serious <laughs> no, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, you know, there was, I think one thing that's been lost, honestly, is LeVay was a funny guy and he had, he made fun of a lot of the things. And a lot of people actually criticize LeVay for that, wearing the horns and presenting himself as a devil. And they say, oh, you, how do you take these guys? How do you take this guy fucking serious? But what you highlight is a very important point. That humor, as the left-hand path in Satanism has grown, we've lost some of that Levian spark, that making fun of things. And I take that as a valid criticism, actually. So I think we need to reintroduce in a general aspect. Um, as things become more religious, we need to be able to laugh at things a bit more. And I, I think the core Satanists and not just LeVay, but Stanislav Shibashevsky, they knew how to kind of make fun of things. 
With you, though, like, I mean, we're talking about a, essentially a philosophical book here, but with you, where do you fall in the spectrum? Like, do you consider yourself theistic? Do you consider yourself philosophical? Do you follow a particular tradition? Because, you know, there's there's uh, there's so many. There's uh, what the Sitra Ahra. Sitra Ahra, there's the um, there's um, the uh, draconian tradition of Carlson. There's sure. the sample of Set. There's I don't even consider the the most popular group at the current time. I don't even think they qualify because they're really just a political action group founded by a person who really is is uh, I think a covert pro- uh, process church. <laughs> I wouldn't say member because the process church doesn't really exist anymore. But um, it's really just a I wish he was that interesting. I know you're talking about Lucien Greaves, but I wish it, it, it was that. I, you know, I, don't, I have nothing against Lucien Greaves. I think he believes in the kind of the movement he started, and that, that's, that's great. And I think, you know, well, the, satanic just... te- the satanic temple itself, I don't find particularly interesting. Um, Lucien Greaves... I see him trying to hearken to the 19th century kind of some of the poetic, some of the satanic poets and take some of those ideas. But I think that's lost in the general movement. I think it's a reactionary political movement, but that's fine. I consider them the cousins I don't want to see at, 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 at Christmas <laughs> dinner, you know, like I don't want to run into them, but I consider them my satanic cousins. Um, as far as where I lie, I say a bit of Temple of Set, so a bit of Aquino. Um, no esoteric Satanist can really, no esoteric Satanist can really give grounding to their belief without at least hearkening to uh, Mike, Michael Aquino and the work he's done with the Temple of Set. So I have to immediately do that. Um, Kenneth Grant, as much as people are trying to move towards Kenneth Grant in uh, contemporary occultism, did not actually have a major influence on the left-hand path at the time. We just have to acknowledge that for what it is. Um, Kenneth Grant did have influence now, uh, and he's having influence presently, but he did not have influence on any... If it wasn't for LeVay, this is the thing that's hard for people to to come to terms with. Just They kind of have to, objectively. And that is, without LeVay, we wouldn't have satanism like we wouldn't be discussing the left-hand path in the western world or anything like that now there could have been another reason that it happened but in our world in this timeline in this dimension uh anton levey is the reason uh we're having this conversation um and that's fine we don't have to agree with anything levey said but it's what brought it into the zeitgeist and uh, kenneth grant uh kind of kind of came later but could you say the other part of what you said? Because I think there was another point I wanted to respond to. Well, I mostly wanted to know where you stand among the spectrum of those perspectives. And I would right. I would say, I don't know. I think that the point you just made, though, begs reconsideration. Because I, I remember seeing the flowering of a synthetic egregore that was a sort of um, composite forum of uh the to uh the chaos magic movement which really though it's you know chaos magicians in the 80s and 90s said that they didn't really believe anything what they really did in practice was a combination of satanism uh trying to get the gods of lovecraft to really totally and um 
you know, a little bit of Teutonic mysticism, yeah. Temple of Set and Typhonian OTO. And a lot of those yeah, people yeah. were in both the Temple of Set and Typhonian OTO. So there was a sort of ceremonial Satanism that arose uh, within the 80s and 90s that was like really, really the child of, I would say, uh, Temple of Set and the Typhonian OTO. Sure, 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 sure. But, uh, you know, I think Aquino's movement in this terms of esoteric left-hand path was very much married to the Church of Satan and LeBay movement. You know, Aquino was uh, really believed in Anton LeBay, really believed in his movement. And they were both actually crushed by his departure in the in 1974, 1975, when the, the Temple of Set diverged. Aquino didn't want to do that. And LeVay didn't want either. But it was something that kind of set the pace for, for what would come. Now, back onto kind of, but what you, you the chaos, chaos magic, the one point on that is chaos magic does point to a very interesting development in esotericism. I see chaos magic as a, as a denunciation of tradition a deconstruction of tradition and saying, we're just going to use what's going, what works in that sense, this deconstructive kind of active nihilistic way that chaos magic developed itself is a very fascinating movement in Western esotericism. And you're right in saying that it's left-hand path. I think it totally is. Uh, Where I kind of find myself is I look to the Luciferianism of Blavatsky. I look to the early literary Satanists and their, and uh, some of the traditional diabolatry. Um, Satan as this figure you appeal to for worldly affair. Um, but I look to the Levi uh, or Levian aspect of Satan as this balancing figure, as this cosmic force, the Sophitic Gnostic aspect but if I had to choose someone, I probably, if I had to choose one group that I mostly align with, it's all these aspects that I kind of incorporate into my own practice. I think Johannes Nefostos and his Star of Azazel. So his work in the Phosphoros and Catechism of Lucifer and um, Agatazim and uh, a lot of the work he's done on Gnostic Satanism, I think has influenced me quite a bit, but it's more he's galvanized what was already there. And that is an adoration of theos, uh, theosophic um, mysticism. So Blavatsky mysticism and how it relates to Lucifer and Satan. Do you consider that figure to be an objective entity? I do. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I do. I'm uh you know, I think there's far more to it. Uh, you know, we can we can discuss the symbolic meaning and we can discuss the metaphysical meaning, but in a very real way, in summary, yes, I'm a believer. That's and and I think that that's significant, right? Because the way we engage with something we see as being alive and real is different from something we just see as like a um, I don't know, construct. Yeah, no, I uh, I pray every day. And I ritualize and I believe in the gods I pray to. Um, I think in our modern, in our modern times, we, and I think this is highlighted a lot in um, Nefasto's work, but 
how as a cultist we are fighting for this relationship to belief and understandably in our modern times that is just inundated with rationale scientific reductionism it becomes difficult to believe and i think we're looking for evidence of our belief a lot of occultism says look for the results of your magic and it almost becomes this um, midnight or 2 a.m. infomercial about magic's effectiveness. And I think magic, it, it is important for magic to work for you and, and all these things, of course, of course. And for you to, you know, find success in your in your religious belief. But there is this constant battle between belief and faith and occultism and trying to reconcile it in our modern times. I actually see it as a beautiful struggle, but I see it as one that's difficult. Uh, So I pray and I believe, and I also doubt constantly. And this is a struggle that I go through that I say in earnest and honesty, that being a person of faith in our modern world, if you're going to be honest with yourself is actually quite a struggle. And it's quite a, um, although I've had experiences uh, within this whole thing that are, I, some would say are completely unquestionable. I try to be a skeptic. So I'm a faithful skeptic in that I question everything I see and everything I experience. Um, I'm anti-woo-woo. I don't, uh, I, I, I don't like the silliness of just UPG, unverified personal gnosis. I don't like Facebook occultism. So I try to fight for something more serious to be more skeptical. And in that, I'm in a constant tug of war. I've had very compelling experiences that I'll die with. Um, but, you know, I, I acknowledge that we live in a skeptical time and that's a struggle that we deal with as occultists. So you believe in magic for sure then? 100%. Well, that's good because we do too. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I believe in interacting with spirits and and magic and it causing change in the world that we exist in, and I think it's had pretty fantastical changes in my life that I'm very deep deeply grateful for. And so to deny it, you know, one of one of uh, the the satanic rules that Nietzsche puts down, he has these eleven satanic rules, and one says, "Do not." It's actually the last one. Do, do not deny the power of magic after you've utilized it for your benefit. Um, and I awesome, think actually interesting. Yeah. And I think there's power in that, you know, don't. Oh, absolutely. There, there, there's the, of course there's the axiomatic, um, you know, the four laws to know, to will, to dare and to keep silent. So to keep silent, but LeVay kind of adds an, that extra part that is um, do not deny that, which you've already spoken. Right. So we must keep silent, but also do not deny what you've already said. So, yeah, great. Thank you. That was a very interesting, thought provoking uh, discussion. Yeah. No, I thought that was awesome. And you- yeah, I, I, I think you, you know, both of, both of you have facilitated some, I guess, what I consider some of the most thought provoking questions. It actually had me kind of thinking about things quite a bit. Okay, awesome. And what else do you have going on that people can kind of uh, follow up with or tune into? 
Yeah. So um, Fraud Ignition, The Left-Hand Path is from Atramentus Press. That's going to be published in the uh, first or second week of March. So if you're interested in that, you can find it there. I have another project I'm, I'm working on with Samuel David, who is a kind of his expertise is in the Mesopotamian mysteries. So we're looking at um, creating a co-authoring a, a book that a uh, project that kind of ties the line between Mesopotamian belief and left hand path, which has often been loosely and haphazardly connected. So we want to kind of cut to uh, the, the core of it. So that, that's a project that we're going to be working on for the rest of the year. I also have um, my own podcast. I'm on a podcast. I know it's okay to yeah, promote my own, totally. which is a def- deferred gnosis podcast. And please, please do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So though um, there's also a documentary series on the occult that's supposed to be coming out on Apple TV that I did over a year ago, and now it's finally going to um, come come to fruition. So that should be later in the year, around fall. Um, awesome. So, that's, yeah. That's super great, dude. Thanks, Janice, Dominic. Thank you so much. All right, so that was Shay Belay, an erudite and eloquent exponent of the metaphysics of Nishi. What a cool conversation. You know, it's our aim on this podcast to explore a spectrum of perspectives and expose people to a variety of ideas and aspects of metaphysics, inclusive of the metaphysics of magic, but also um, genuine philosophy, theology, etc. We as sons of Hermes cleave to a certain impartiality and an openness, and I'm so glad that we remain true to that ideal with this conversation. It was so interesting, and I hope that everyone listening got something out of it too. Yeah, I think this was, uh, I wouldn't say a surprise, but it, it was it was um, an eye-opening episode. Shea is very convincing. Um, he's a great advocate for his perspective and that particular path. Um, he makes a strong case for it and, um, you know, ar- articulates that viewpoint very well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely intrigued by this book that he has coming out on uh Nietzsche that sounds super interesting actually and um yeah it was just really fun and eye-opening and interesting to talk to yet another really intelligent well-read practitioner and I think one of the things to keep in mind here is that just as in every other area of life we need to be conscious of not allowing ourselves to fall into assumptions about others, just as sometimes people leaning towards the right-hand path 
can unfortunately be maligned as boring or um, idealistic or over traditional, which none of those things are the case with many of them. People on the left hand path in the Western esotericism, I don't really mean the uh, Vama Marg or the Eastern traditions of Tantra, but uh, the West, le- in the West, the left hand path can also have its own cliches of dark spookies who are obsessed with cliched uh, devil figures and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it becomes equally tedious. And then you encounter people who are actually living in this and take it seriously and are involved and devoted. I'll take somebody who is practicing anything in a serious, serious, diligent and sincere way over somebody who is just a theoretician any day of the week. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's just also very interesting um, what he practices. I mean, it's um, it's kind of like a, a modern Western Tantra um, in a way. And it's not that different from things like Gnosticism in that, um, in, in the way that Gnosticism kind of turns things upside down to kind of give you a new perspective, uh, uh, thinking outside the box and, and that kind of stuff with, you know, the snake in the garden is not necessarily the bad guy and things like that. It's interesting to kind of experience these thought expanding uh, paradigms and, and it's definitely worth uh, keeping an open mind towards. Okay. So as far as our book review, what do you have for us this week? I have an intriguing, wonderful biography published by Neptune Press, written by Julia Phillips on Madeline Montalban, the Magus of St. Giles. Madeline is a personal hero for me, heroine, I should say. She is a marginalized figure in the history of modern Western esotericism. And it's kind of a shame because she was brilliant, charismatic, enthusiastic, innovative uh, magician. She was an Englishwoman, um, and she ran an order called the Order of the Morning Star, which exists to this day. And she taught a system of sacred magic, of angelic magic, uh, based upon the Paulian art. Um, She was also a tarot reader and an astrologer, and was sort of in the scene, the sort of, you know, popping off, thriving, magical scene of her day. And this is a wonderful biography of her that talks all about her and her life and the people she was associated with and ideas that she taught in her order. It has many full-color images of um, of of uh, all kinds of things images that she used in her order, pictures of her with different individuals, including her magical lodge, um, history. I mean, she's such a, um, to me, she's such an interesting figure. She was, you know, a very powerful, intelligent woman who ran a magical order in uh, England and was, was actually fairly well known at the time in magical circles. She 
to not do Golden Dawn style magic. She created a system all her own, which she taught was inspired by the archangels and the planetary angels, the teaching angels. She also, interestingly, it appears that Alexanders, who founded quote unquote Alexandrian witchcraft, um, that he he was strongly, heavily, you could say, influenced from her, that he used some of her material in his his own witch cult that he formed, his Wiccan um cult. So she I mean she had a far-ranging influence to the present day. This book is just really neat. It's so cool. I love learning about her. She was so interesting. And these days, you know, there's always there's 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 always a a flavor of the week when it comes to magic. And there's perennially perennially popular figures in magical history, especially in modern magical history. You always hear people talking about Crowley or Gardner or you know, even Dion Fortune or Yeats or uh, any number of other figures. But there's people that, for some reason, yes, they're known to a certain degree, like Paschal Beverly Randolph or Madeline Montalban, but they're relegated to the sidelines because, for whatever reason, they just don't have the popular interest. And it's a shame because you can learn a lot from them. I've learned a lot from this book. And I've also learned a lot from Madeline's other work, which I highly recommend. And I also just recommend it because I honor her legacy and I wish her well where she is. Very cool. And the name of the book again? Madeline Montalban, The Magus of St. Giles by Julia Phillips. It came out on Neptune Press. Nice. And I believe she had a, a significant influence on a former guest of our show, Balthazar of Balthazar's Conjure, which. We, I think we talked about Madeline a little bit in that interview, so it might well, be worth true. going. Might be might be worth going back to listen to that one. And interestingly, you know, I think that people who are interested in traditional witchcraft will recognize the name of Michael Howard. And Michael Howard was heavily influenced by Madeline and uh, learned learned a lot of what she taught. And he also integrated that in his teachings. Uh, speaking of Balthazar, Balthazar, Balthazar has a very exciting new um, project coming out. It's a deck of cards, the Divine Gypsy Mother. It's going to be coming out on Scarlet Imprint. We're not being paid to advertise this. We just love his work. It'd um, be nice if we were paid for it. That'd be Yeah, cool. so give us lots of money. <laughs> <laughs> but just kidding. But we're excited about this. And uh, he's also been doing some interesting angelic work. So go check his stuff out and support him. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I think it's time to wrap up. So. On that note, thank you everyone for listening. As always, we appreciate your support, listenership, um, the positive feedback. Uh, keep it coming, and yeah, it's it's we're we're reaching people all over the world, which is fascinating. So, hi, hello to our listeners in Hong Kong, Australia, um, England, New Zealand. Thank you all for for listening. <laughs>